It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, it's going to be the future soon. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we thought we would participate in a quintessential forward-thinking exercise, yeah. which is analysis of the prediction of the future. Yeah, we've done a couple of episodes where we've talked about uh, projections that current futurists have about the future. We've even talked about uh, really lousy predictions that happened in the past. Lauren and I did an episode when you were out once, Joe, and I remember when you came back, you were sad to find out that you didn't get to participate, where we talked about really off-the-mark predictions from the past where people were just thinking all sorts of crazy things were going to happen by now. 
so we wanted to talk about some of our favorites, whether they were completely off track way back when or if it's a current prediction about what the future will be and what our thoughts are. And so we kind of all got some notes about the sort of stuff that we want to talk about. My first one is actually about a series of drawings, postcards really, from uh, France from 1899, 1900, 1901, and 1910. You know, I'd seen these things before, and these are great. They're they, beautiful. They're yeah. like full-color mm-hmm. uh, beauties that are, I don't know, they're not actually as cartoonish as one might imagine. The Some of them have some interesting detail in them. Yeah, there's a, a lot of different... Um, well, different aspects of what they thought the future would be like. Uh, and it's all sort of fantastical. Some of them actually are, are pretty prescient. Uh, they were essentially thinking about what is the world going to be like in the year 2000. Yeah. Uh, so one of them, I know it's got like a, a barbershop where yes. people are getting uh, some gentlemen are leaning back in very cushy looking chairs, getting their necks shaved. By robots with razors going all over the place, like crazy robot arms off of off of big. Uh, I, 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 they look like kind of like pneumatic poles that yeah. come up in in intervals out of the floor. Yeah, it's when, essentially like kind of like a column, but with a, some sort of pneumatic element to it, so that the arms that are bolted onto the pneumatic part could be raised or lowered. Uh huh. When I watch those uh, DARPA robotics challenge fails, the main thing I think is I want one of these things shaving me with a straight <laughs> razor. Well, and and. Let's let's also point out that in this particular illustration, there is a gentleman uh, uh, well quaffed, uh, which would not normally happen if you happen to be the barber. You, if you always know the barber in the town, he's the one with the worst hairdo. By oh, I get See? it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, but he this guy has a great hairdo because it's all you know done with these robot arms. Although he is currently operating a uh, a, a system, well, at least a giant lever. Uh, so perhaps there is at least some human power in this in this uh, system, even if it's just to turn it on or off. I think what I like less than the idea of robot arms shaving me um, is uh, robot arms controlled by a person who's not looking at me. <laughs> That's true. His <laughs> back is me. to the the customers. Yeah, I think these are not autonomous shaving robots. These these are in fact just like uh, multiple extensions. You know, you've got those machines where you press one button and it does like five things at once. I think right. that's what's going on here. The barber is operating a machine and the machine translates all his actions into actions on five different customers at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more it's a more sophisticated version of that old this might actually be too old for you guys, but uh for, for chalkboards, mm-hmm. there there were occasionally these things it was like just a little board with little wire holders yep, that you put multiple p- pieces of chalk oh, yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it was the same a way thing. of cheating if the teacher told you to stay after school <laughs> and, write, and write, I, I will not spit in my neighbor's milk, right. and, you know, a hundred times. <laughs> right. So so it's it's like that where it's really it, the idea is to, to make it easier for one person to do uh, the work of like five all at the same time. Another uh, image has an aero cab station. I love this this picture. This is actually something that's kind of interesting because uh, right now as we record this, there's talk of Uber looking into creating VTOL vehicles for uh, taxi cabs. We you, talked about this in a previous a, episode. You think that's just a publicity stunt? Them no, talking about that. No, I, I don't think it's a publicity stunt. I think it's I think it's a company that is used to making grandiose uh, proclamations and then 
not quite realizing what the consequences are ahead of time. I don't think that I don't think it's so much a publicity stunt as it is them rushing into an area that's not quite mature. Well, I mean, like when Uber says, oh, we want to have driverless Uber cars, I, I can see that being a feasible thing yeah. not too far in the future. When they say we want a VTOL uh, flying taxi cab or flying Ubers. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, the picture the picture from these postcards shows uh, uh, t- tiny cabs that have wings that apparently can extend or, or can tilt upward, so they can dock with a uh, uh, a landing station, and then they have propellers on the front that allow them to fly. Uh, obviously, that would not be the case with the the Uber approach. They're looking at VTOL, and we talked about this when we said what would it take to have flying cars, and yeah. I think we all agreed. VTOL would be absolutely necessary just from a space issue. Right. And that autonomous operation would be necessary because we don't think any human being should ever operate a flying car. Absolutely. Unless they're like a very accomplished pilot, Uh, especially if you're talking about within a a dense urban setting. Right. Yeah. If it's out in the open and there's there's plenty of space, maybe you could have like some exhibitions or whatever. But if you're talking about – mundane day-to-day operations, we want autonomy in that. Uh, yeah, I, I never want the day when uh, when a car crash results in like in like fiery parts raining from the sky. Yeah, that's not a that's not good news. No, uh, I just want those people operating a multi-ton lethal weapon they can drive around on the ground at seventy miles an hour. I've been saying this whole time <laughs> that I can't wait for driverless cars. I mean, I've just I want to make that clear. Uh, uh, hey, no, I want to point something out because I've looked at a bunch of these postcards, yeah. these French postcards yeah. that you're referring to, and a whole lot of them involve flight. Many like, of them do. I would yeah. say from my memory, just more than half of them involve flying humans of one type or another. Right. Well, and that's the thing. It's always humans. Uh, like the concept of flying robotics, I don't think had occurred to, to, to anyone doing this postcard series, particularly uh, like like one of the other images that you that you added to our show notes here um, has a, a fireman with these like kind of bat looking wings. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. are that are putting out a fire. It's essentially like they're all wearing jetpacks, except instead of jets, they are flapping wings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and and there are several in the series that are similar to that. I only included the the fireman one because it was such a, a beautiful picture uh-huh. of these people who are uh are are flying through the air using water hoses to fight fires and and to uh, they're you know flying up to rescue a baby and can I point out that in this picture if I'm understanding what the artist meant correctly so the firefighters have these bat type wings and I believe the wings are secured to their ankles via some kind of connecting strap so it looks like what the artist had in mind is that the firefighter is held aloft in the air by flapping wings that are powered by the firefighter's own leg movements. They could also be pneumatic. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, that particular image, it's very difficult to say. But Do you see it, though? They're all connected. I hadn't noticed that before, but yeah, that's that's very... Well, if you if you look at some of the other ones from the series, there's another one where there's a police officer who's pulling over a, an aviator mm-hmm. who has clearly done something naughty, and so the police officer is wearing wings that are uh, that extend out from his back, but has a tail as well, presumably mm-hmm. to provide stability. I mean, we're not crazy, and uh, <laughs> the, but the tail is attached to his ankles. So he's got he's got these tethers that essentially go from the tail to his ankles, and he's uh, in an upright position 
uh, with respect to the airplane that he's trying to pull over. Not entirely certain how he's maintaining altitude while in a vertical position with wings. <laughs> you would think that would pretty much cause you to plummet. <laughs> but uh, in the future, physics will no longer apply. Uh, well, I, and I did. I did want to mention that you know we we are. This year, we've been fighting fires with drones. Yeah. No, yeah. We're starting to see – and we've also seen issues with drones getting in the way of firefighters. But it's nice to see them being used in the uh, – in, in scoping out the, the – the, um, like how big a fire is, like how far does it stretch. Mm-hmm. And also to get a good look at places that would obviously be dangerous to send a person into uh, without first checking out what's going on. But we don't attach – a, a drone to a person and send a person in because that's crazy because that's obviously terrible. Yeah, that would be not so good. Uh, also, there's another element in some of these. And, you know, I didn't include all of them. Uh, I included, you know, a few. But if you go to there's a website, the public domain dot org, who has the entire collection, essentially, of all the ones that have survived. And they're gorgeous. Uh, there's a, a collection of them also where uh, another big theme was underwater uh, activities. Yeah, there was there weren't there people riding on seahorses, giant seahorses. Sea horses. Yep, in the future there will be giant seahorses. There's giant seahorses. There's one where they're they're uh, uh, doing the equivalent of a horse race, except they're all riding uh, very long eel-like fish. Uh, there's another one where they are fishing for seagulls. Mm-hmm. So they're throwing hooked lines up. Through the surface of the water, seagulls grab them and then they drag the seagulls underwater, presumably to their deaths. Uh-huh. Uh, don't I, know why you would want to do it. Drowning I, birds for fun. Yeah. I guess that's no more horrifying than pulling fish which breathe underwater out into our atmosphere. Maybe. Uh, I, I think it's a little yeah. more horrifying. And, I, and but... I like fish better than I like birds, so I'm sort of okay with it. Uh, all right. Well, Lauren, the seagull murderer. Sorry. You all now know that. Sorry, seagulls. Uh, speaking of disturbing uh, uses of birds, there's another one of these images that is just titled Intensive Breeding. <laughs> and it is a picture of a woman who I think is working on an egg farm with a basket full of eggs. And she's attending this big refrigerator-sized machine that has lots of little yellow chicks coming out of it on a slide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you put the <laughs> put the eggs in the top, and chicks come out, and but they get to ride a slide. Uh, uh-huh. What's what's so sinister about that? I don't know. I, what is this machine supposed to be doing? I think it just hatches eggs faster than a than a chicken could. Apparently, I don't by magic and technology. Uh, there's one that I think is actually kind of kind of interesting. There's the electric scrubbing one, where it's a. Uh, showing a machine that is used to brush and scrub the floor. Uh, this, again, is being operated by somebody, a maid at this point, uh, off to the side, so it's not fully autonomous. Who, in the year 2000, is still wearing something that looks strikingly like uh, like Edwardian maid attire. Uh, that is something that we wanted to mention, too, is that, uh, Joe, you brought this up earlier today when I was telling you oh, that yeah. this was going to be something I was going to talk about. So while the technology... Uh, seems to be kind of an advanced version of what they had available to themselves in these visions. When it comes to things like costume and uh, and and hairstyles, everything remains exactly of that era. They can imagine the technology changing, but they can't imagine the culture changing. Exactly. Yeah, you don't see any representation of other uh, ethnicities either. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, well, and, and, in, and in these cases, I mean, it's, it's certainly not as though other, other work from about the same time period didn't portray like, like futuristic in big honking quote and marks, um, quote and marks. Yeah. <laughs> I like them. Um, uh, futuristic fashion, um, in, in, in other, in other science fiction and, uh, science, uh, uh, presumptuous <laughs> materials, <laughs> right? The- um, but 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 yeah, in this particular case, it's it, it's part of its charm. But but yeah, so so this so this cleaning device is essentially a very large manually operated Roomba. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's kind of this also kind of plays into something else I want to talk about, just in general, when it comes to pre- make predicting the future. Uh, two things. One was that that idea that we find it very difficult to uh, imagine how people change. Uh, along with technology, right? We we sit there and we look at the technology and say, oh, well, here's what the technology is going to be like in another 50 years. But it's hard for us to imagine what people will be like at that time. Can I offer a possible reason for that? Sure. Uh, I would think that that might have something to do with the fact that technology changes along a predictable path in that you don't know exactly what solutions technology will uh, will represent, what it will come up with, but you sort of know what problems it will be trying to solve unless you're imagining a very far future where there are new problems that haven't even emerged yet. Right. But all these problems are things that people understood at the time and were things that people actually wanted done. They wanted robots to make work easier. Mm-hmm. They wanted uh, the power of flight. They wanted faster transportation. They wanted automation. Uh, All these things are real, obvious concerns. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to predict the future of culture, like what, how clothes will look different, you don't have that same prompt. You you can't say like, I know what problems future fashion, you know, fashion designers will be trying to solve. It's just not something you can predict. It's not a linear change pattern. You could probably predict that whatever the fashion is of that particular era, it would be some sort of take on the fashion from 20 years previous. (laughs) Yes, that's usually a pretty good rule. And furthermore, it's really difficult to predict um, how technologies like that could change us. Like, mm-hmm. like, like what, like how te- those technologies would be changing the culture that would lead to those kind of differences in appearance and, uh, and day to day life, all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like you can sit there and imagine that, that, like, yes, there's going to be this, this cleaning robot, but you're still hiring a maid to operate it. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I'm not, I don't really want to call out the, uh, artists of that time period for being particularly silly or whatever. This is true for every era, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, these I are just beautiful examples. Beautiful, I can't ridiculous imagine. examples. Oh, well, yeah. And I would, I would also say these things are probably made with some sense of humor about them. Sure, oh, yeah. sure. I, I'm just saying, I can't imagine, say, being in the 1980s and being able to, uh, anticipate, like, the man bun. It just wouldn't have occurred <laughs> to me. Never would have, never would have thought that that would become a thing. I, this isn't even me judging. I'm just saying that in the 80s, I never would have, huh, that that would have been a big deal. Like it would have been one of those deals where if someone had shown me a picture of it, I'm like, well, what? Why is, what's the, he- where did you get this? What if in the 1980s somebody told you people will be making multi-million dollar live action Transformers movies? <laughs> I mean, I would have at the time thought that that would have been brilliant. <laughs> because it would have been before Michael Bay got a chance to do that. Uh, well, wait, how would you even imagine that in the 1980s live action Transformers? That doesn't even make sense. I would be able to imagine it. In the 1980s, I was a kid. I could imagine that I was a giraffe. Oh. Wow. Okay? 
come on. I mean, as an adult, it's a lot harder, but as a kid, limitless. So also <laughs> I, I wanted to mention that, that the other issue, cause I said there were two, the other issue with predicting the future, especially when it comes to technology is that we typically look at what is, uh, available today. We look at the things that we are currently trying to develop uh, right now, and then we just sort of project based upon that, right? We we sit mm-hmm. there and say, okay, let's extend outward from where we are now and where we look like we're headed. But that means we, we can't, and by definition, we cannot uh, anticipate any innovations that come out of left field that change the game entirely, which means that by the time we get to that future, it may be that certain things we thought were promising turned out to be dead ends. Other things we hadn't even considered might be the norm. A great example of this would be back in the 1950s when everyone was building uh, electronics with vacuum tubes. No one at the point that point in the early 50s was really anticipating the that transistors were going to, one, become small enough to really become a, an important electronic component, and two, replace vacuum tubes. And that's why you get these predictions about giant computers of the future. Right, stuff. right. Because back then, if you were using vacuum tubes, they take up a lot more space than transistors do. And it would mean that if you wanted a really powerful computer, you'd have to have a lot more vacuum tubes. So it stood to reason that a very, very powerful computer would be enormous, the size of a building or bigger. So uh, because of that, we find it amusing to see some of these predictions, but we have to keep in mind that we're doing the same thing, right? We're making predictions based upon where we are right now. Uh, and by, again, by definition, we cannot anticipate something that comes out of seemingly nowhere. Right. Uh, so I, I don't want to heap too much, uh, uh, jovial, uh, disdain or anything like that toward people who have made these predictions. I prefer we heap Saturnine disdain. Rather than jovial. All the time, yes, of course. Well, uh, the other one I wanted to talk about, which is uh, a little less less, uh, whimsical, I would say, is the driverless car uh, predictions. Because I, I, I mentioned just a few minutes ago, I love the idea of a society that has... Uh, driverless cars, especially if driverless cars are the primary vehicles on the road. Yeah, I, I try not to be overly sanguine about uh, naive, optimistic future predictions, but I feel like this is one I've always been pretty optimistic about and remain pretty optimistic about, even though even though we've now seen some tragic accidents with driverless cars. I think... I don't know. I, I I'm I'm pretty bullish on this one. Yeah. I think I think it's completely possible. Just there are so many kinks to work out before it's uh, practical. I, I think the kinks are mainly on the political side and social side as well, and not so much on the technological side. There's oh some. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, I mean because because mostly like like we we technically have the technology to to have all of these devices talking to each other. We just need a the rules and regulations in place that will make companies make their products talk to each other. And and be, uh, build it. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, we also need to get people on board, literally and figuratively, uh, with the idea of driverless cars. Yeah. I mean, you've you've got an expectations problem. Yeah. In that, uh, pe- essentially, it's like you're not going to hold driverless cars to the same standard that you would hold cars with human drivers who can take personal responsibility to. 
Human drivers are already so bad at driving. Yeah. Driverless cars, I don't think, are going to have a problem of being worse than human drivers. <laughs> right. But the problem is it's not okay for them to just be better than human drivers. They essentially need to be perfect. Well, right. and when it comes to driverless cars, so I would say that that the truly, the truly uh, autonomous cars that are out there, not not like Tesla's autopilot, but the truly autonomous cars out there have demonstrated that they, based upon the number of miles they've driven without any uh, uh, major accidents, that they are by far better than human drivers. If you look at the them, you know, for a million miles and how many accidents are mm-hmm. are represented, um, it's pretty cut and dry that they're superior. Uh, when you get to autopilot, then that's not supposed to be an autonomous system. That's not intended to be. People treat it as if it is, and that's yeah. a, that's a problem. Although, and if we're talking about public opinion, it's all about perceptions, and- right? And and also there's this public opinion. So so the Verge ran a piece recently in which they uh, referenced a poll uh, where people were asked, U.S. drivers were asked about their opinions on self-driving cars. One of the, the questions they were asked was that. Uh, um, they were given choices between different levels of autonomy. So a level five autonomous car would be one that's fully autonomous and has no no uh, control system for a human. Level four would still have control systems that humans could use. And everyone's like, I don't want level five. Not everyone. 80 percent were like, I don't want level five. I want level four. Like I, it, I absolutely want to be able to wrest control from the system if I need to. I and think they're they're anticipating a scenario where they really want to be able to run somebody over with their car on maybe, purpose. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but I, I the, the the immediately I realize that like that's a terrible problem for 80% people to say I want to still be able to take over control of this car. I get it that if you find driving enjoyable and you still want to have that experience occasionally, I get it. But if you're talking about taking over control of the car after it's under autonomous control, what you're really talking about when you boil it down is two drivers struggling for control of the same vehicle at the same time. Even if you have an autonomous vehicle that can very quickly figure out that a human is trying to take over and switch over to manual control, it's it's still kind of like if I were to reach over while Lauren's driving and just grab the steering wheel and give it a nice sharp tug to the right. That's not good. That's bad. Well, I would, for, I would say. for some reason I had stopped paying attention and was driving us off a cliff, that would be yeah, good. But, but, and, I, and I think that's the kind of scenario that people – that 80 percent of people are thinking about. Yeah, yeah but, I guess they're imagining – like they're thinking uh, this car is going to have problems or at least early <laughs> generations are and I'm going to need to find it. I'm, I'm going to need to have manual override like, like, to get yeah. around those problems. Like there's going to be a life or death situation that it's going to come up that, that I'm going to need to be able to stop the car in case of. Yeah, that's, that's what they're imagining and I think it's um, – my opinion is that they are are largely wrong, or maybe they're mistaken and they think that the total control means that the car is also going to tell them what they have to listen to on the radio. Yeah, well, I mean, or that they, I would have issues with that too, yeah. especially with Atlanta radio, <laughs> or like or like tell them which like coffee shop to go to. Right, and right. We I should also point out that I no, like, I won't take you there. Uh, th- Apparently, this poll also had people saying sixty four percent of the respondents saying that they don't want the car that they own to be autonomous, and uh, I think that presupposes the idea that they would own a car um, mm-hmm. uh, as we've talked about, a lot of the models that would have autonomous cars on the road suggest that these would not be personal vehicles. you would not own 
an autonomous car. It wouldn't make sense. It would make more, more sense to have a company operating fleets of autonomous cars, and it's all on demand. And the reason why it makes sense is that if your car is sitting idle more than 90% of the time you own it, doesn't it make more sense for that car to go out and do work rather than just sit there? And if it were doing that, then you could end up freeing up space that would otherwise be used for things like parking spots or garages. Uh, anyone who has a garage would have essentially an extra room now for storage or whatever you wanted. Um, you wouldn't, you would be able to free up space on streets where you wouldn't have people parking all up and down streets. My street, you would actually be able to drive down because people park on both sides of the street to the point where if your car's wide enough, you're going to reconsider going down that way. Um, so, I mean, I think the most realistic vision of driverless cars remains this idea of a fleet, that it's like an Uber or a Lyft where you call a ride when you need to. And now, obviously, that means that the best use case for this would be in dense urban environments. If you're out in a rural area, it makes more sense to have a personally operated vehicle because – uh, you're not going to have enough density of vehicles in those rural spots to have a, a reasonable um, response time if you need to have a ride. Oh well, I mean, you know, you could you could say that it would be something like a like a Netflix subscription, and and having different subscriptions for different needs. Like if you're in a city, uh, then you call a car up whenever you need one. If you're in the country, maybe uh, you have a you have a car that you essentially like like lease out. Maybe it is autonomous that uh, that that you hang out with for a certain period of time. I, I could see that possibly being the case. Uh, it, it you know there are obviously a, there's a lot of opportunities for different. Um, business strategy. So just as I was saying earlier, where yeah, we yeah. where you know, taking today and then projecting outward, I was just doing that right now when I was talking about driverless cars. And you brought up an, uh, a, a situation, Lauren, that I had not really thought about, but it totally makes sense. That could t- completely be someone's business plan moving forward. So um, I also think that autonomous cars, they're, they're going to be a thing, whether they become the thing and replace uh personally, like manually operated vehicles. Uh, I don't know what timeline we'd be looking at for something like that. I'm I'm guessing a couple of decades at the earliest to to really get to a point where uh, you've got enough of the population saying, yeah, I don't care about driving a car. I just want to have a way of getting to where I need to go and then not worry about it again. Um, They may take like a generation or two to get through. Well, we, we keep hearing stories about how more younger people have less of a desire to own a car for for a variety of reasons, largely uh, economic, but not only economic. And I imagine if those trends continue, then we'll see people much more receptive to this idea. Uh, but that that again presupposes that a trend continues and doesn't change. That's still a possibility. Anyway, those were the two I really wanted to talk about: one that was more whimsical, and one that was more grounded in reality. Um, but it's the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, it's hard for me to pick just a couple of predictions about the future that I really love. But uh, I, I decided to 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 just commit to those. So I want to hear what you guys picked. Well, I wanted to think about predictions about the social impact of telecommunications. Who uses their phone now to make calls? <laughs> Well, no, I would say the internet counts as telecommunications. Sure, absolutely. Sure. So yeah. does and, texting. I mean, and like, so does the telegraph. Yep, that's true. Also I mean, emoji. Emoji? Yeah. 
if yeah. you're sending them across an internet or text message. You know, we have never done a full episode about emoji before. We Frowny haven't. Face. Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Cry laughing. <laughs> it would be amazing if we came up with some, uh, never mind. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about something that I've actually mentioned. I know I've mentioned once on a tech stuff episode that I guested on with you, Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, which uh, is an article from 1912 mm-hmm. from Technical World magazine. I didn't check to see if this magazine still exists. I wonder if it does. Probably not. Uh, but the article is by one Ivan Narodny, and it's a profile of uh, uh, Guglielmo Marconi. Marconi billed in this article as the inventor of the wireless telegraph, but a well-known inventor of the time. Yes. Sometimes also credited with the radio. Right, right. Tesla fans hate that, but mm-hmm. yes, he often is. Uh, so the article is called Marconi's Plans for the World, and it's got a bunch of long quotes from uh, from Marconi. And this is one of the things he says, quote, I am not personally a socialist. I have small faith in any political propaganda, but I do believe that the progress of invention will create a state which will realize most of the present dreams of the socialists. The coming of the wireless era will make war impossible because it will make war ridiculous. The inventor is the greatest revolutionist in the world. If only. That is such a nice thought. Now, I think there is a certain grain of truth to this because I've read arguments and I think they're kind of convincing that a lot of social changes you see throughout history that you would see uh, attributed to changes in ideology or political movements and stuff like that is actually better understood as a direct result of technological change rather than ideological or political change. I think in a lot of cases that is sort of true. So his comment about the the inventor being the greatest revolutionist, I think there might be something to that. Sure. But on the other hand, he says the wireless era is going to make war impossible because it will make war ridiculous. This was uh, He's half right. Right before the uh, the the first great war, yep. and then of course uh, we got. A few more after well, that. It was, it was the war to end all wars and then the one after that one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Another funny thing later in the same article, the author summarizes more of Marconi's comments by saying, quote, a step further in the progress of wireless stands wireless lighting, heating and transmission of motor power. Each of these systems is based on the same principle as wireless tele- the wireless telegraph. Only uh, the transmitting and receiving instruments are different and the vibrations of the etheric waves have a different nature, intensity, and length. This is also very Tesla-ish. Etheric waves, that's uh-huh. great. Yeah. Um, and we, we have done episodes on, uh, on like, wireless lighting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah we talked about, about things like uh, using inductive coupling and that sort right. of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, but he's thinking at the grand scale. Yeah, so right. he envisions, like, he, he talks about a Niagara Falls power plant that would generate hydropower and then wirelessly transmit 150 million horsepower across New York State and it, that yeah. they would sell it to other states. It's very yeah. sim- very similar to the Tesla uh, approach or the Tesla beliefs of the time, too. Yeah. Uh, wildly impractical as it turns out. Right. This, this thing about power transmission is sort of to the side, but I did want to mention that because 
two main principles come up in this article, the wireless telecommunications, the te- wireless telegraph, mm-hmm. and then wireless power transmission. Of course, now one is a reality and one, the other is not, at least not at the large scale. Uh, and I guess Marconi could have been referring to either or both when he predicted that these conditions would bring about the end of war. But I tend to think more likely that he's referring to uh, to the prospect of universal instantaneous wireless communication as that set of conditions that he thinks is going to make war ridiculous and bring it to an end. And I think this because it fits in with a perennial strain of utopian thinking about the implications of new telecommunications technology. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I can I can see the, the, the merit in that kind of thought process. It's, it's tempting to believe that if people are able to communicate quickly with each other, um, then then they'll be able to reach a better understanding of each other's motivations and, and therefore not have as much stuff to fight about. Yeah, it's essentially a grander scale version of telling children, just talk it out. And right. It'll be fine. Yeah, right. very much. And there are people who very, very much bought into this ideology and have throughout history or mm-hmm. at least throughout the past couple hundred years. So I want to read you a quote from a couple of authors named Charles F. Briggs and Augustus Maverick uh, from 1858. And this is what they wrote. It has been the result of the great discoveries of the past century to affect a revolution in political and social life by establishing a more intimate connection between nations with race and race. It has been found that the old system of exclusion and insulation are stagnation and death. National health can only be maintained by the free and unobstructed interchange of each with all. How potent a power, then, is the telegraph destined to become in the civilization of the world? This binds together by a vital cord all the nations of the earth. It is impossible that old prejudices and hostilities should longer exist, while such an instrument has been created for an exchange of thought between all the nations of the earth. So this seems like sort of along the lines of the Marconi strain of thinking, right? You get people connected to each other through instantaneous telecommunication, and they they just sort of like become one very harmonious mind. And there was an American communication theorist I was reading about named James W. Carey, who wrote a book called Communication as Culture. Uh, This was in the 1980s, I think. Uh, in which there is a chapter about the impact of the original telegraph. Now, this was the wired telegraph, mm-hmm. not the wireless one, but I think the same principle applies to how, how people were thinking about them. And Carey points out that this was, you know, it's the first major invention to separate the concepts of communication and transportation. Really, it's the first example of telecommunication, communication without the transport of mass, basically. Mm-hmm. And I want to read a passage where Carey uh, summarizes this historical attitude. He says, quote, There were dissenters, of course, but the general uniformity of reaction to the telegraph demonstrated how it was able to fuse the opposite poles of the electrical sublime, the desire for peace, harmony, and self-sufficiency with the wish for power, profit, and productivity. The presumed annihilation of time and space heralded by the telegraph promised to bind the country together just as the portents of the Civil War were threatening to tear it apart. 
And he goes on to quote a horrible poem uh, from 1875 <laughs> by somebody named Martin F. Tipper. Never read about that guy in my poetry education. <laughs> but I've got to read a selection from this poem, too. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll try to stop with all the quotes. But this is just too good. Yes, this electric chain from east to west, more than mere metal, more than mammon can, binds us together, kinsmen in the best, as most affectionate and frankest bond, brethren as one, and looking far beyond the world in an electric union blessed. I don't know what you're saying, man. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, some, that's some darn fine poetry. I mean, that, did you hear the alliteration in there? That guy could have written in Old English. <laughs> okay, okay. So he maybe he's technically competent, but this is a poem about the telegraph, the electric union. They and, don't all have to be about clouds and feelings, <laughs> Joe. But Carrie has a name for this mode of talk, which he uh, claims he coined in conjunction with somebody named John Quirk, which Great is a name. good name. Uh, and the name for this this whole style of talking is the rhetoric of the electrical sublime. Ooh. I loved that. Yeah, actually, come to think of it, I like it like a great deal of of poetry that I saw in my poetry classes in like the early two thousands in college would have fallen under that kind of category. What it's like people celebrating how technology is going to save us all, or, or not 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 like how it will save us all, but like oh man, this is magic. Check out this. Magic. Oh, okay. It relates to feelings. Okay. Okay. I'll see that. Kind of thing. Yeah. 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 All right. You poetic elitists is all I'm seeing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to bring us up to today, I would say that the internet is the essentially the ultimate extension of the telecommunications principle. It's all of the telecommunications principle switches just flipped on to full. Yeah. And uh, I think the rhetoric of the electrical sublime absolutely extended to those beautiful, innocent, naive early days of the Internet. Not even the earliest days, into the 1990s. Well, to be fair, though, the 1990s, that's where you get the public uh, right. understanding of the Internet. Because before that, it was essentially the domain of researchers and students and uh, mega nerds. Well, sure. Right. But yeah, those those first few people who were on a, a Prodigy or, or AOL were, were all like, oh, man, like I can talk to my grandmother or... If she had a computer if she, well, <laughs> and understood how it worked. Or uh -huh. something like... I mean, you know, there, there, there were some savvy... There were some savvy grandmas out there on okay. AOL. That's fair. Uh, and and we, we, hadn't, we hadn't seen like the other side of that connectivity yet, which is, you know, just like more opportunities to argue about terrible uh -huh. stuff. Well, yeah. at, the, at the time when the, the Internet was young in the early 1990s, when the web in particular was young, because that didn't really become a thing till 92, uh -huh. right? So when and that was the easiest way to access the Internet. Otherwise, you were accessing elements of the Internet like email, which right. you would just realize is like. Okay, well, this is just a super fast version of mail. I mean, someone's going to get it as soon as I hit send. But other than that, it's not it's not as transformative as some of the other uh, implementations of the internet. Once you get the web there, everyone saw that this was a thing of a seemingly limitless possibility, and because it was just such a big opportunity, it was really hard to get an idea of how would it actually be used, right? Because if you have every option open to you, you don't know what pathway you're going to walk down. It may be that you've been walking for a while before you realize which path you took. Yeah, and so uh, not to say that there wasn't plenty of paranoia and dystopian thinking about the the net back then too, given uh, things like the movie The Net starring <laughs> Sandra Bullock. That was phenomenal, and it predicted being able to order pizza online. 
within the first five minutes of the movie, I might add. Oh, man. That movie. Uh, Rachel and I watched that not too long ago. Yeah. It was hilarious. It's so good, right? It stands yeah. up as being completely terrible. I oh, co- yeah. I covered it on a recent uh, episode of Tech Stuff about hacking in uh, Hollywood. I love it. It's yeah. great. Uh, but anyway, it, I, it's those pictures from the 90s where people didn't realize what computers could and couldn't control yet. Sure. So they'd have, you know, like you, you get into your office uh, and you sit down at your computer and you can control like the fire alarms in the building you're in. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, anyway, so uh, I'm sure you all remember this strain of techno utopianism oh, from yeah. the 90s yeah. about the about the Internet. The Internet's going to be a global village, right? This Marshall McLuhan concept, mm-hmm. uh, the, the information superhighway. There's the idea that there's just sort of like all learning, all sharing, all the world in a kind of mutually informative benign communion uh, where people around the world connect. Do you remember that word connect all the time? And they collaborate and learn to understand one another. And I think that's funny now, not because I would say the Internet has turned out to be a bad thing, which I I certainly don't think. Yeah, because if you did, then you'd be like filled with (laughs) self-loathing. No, 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 I don't think that at all. But I do think it's turned out to be a thing so ubiquitous and so invisible as a substrate for day-to-day behavior that it goes beyond categorization as good or bad, like saying whether the Internet is good or bad is kind of like saying society is good or bad. Well, sure. I mean, you know, on the one hand, you could say look at uh, look at vine- or forums where people are sharing innovative ideas and collaborating in a real sense and trying very hard to – uh, work through challenges. It's it's very inspiring. Or look at YouTube comments. Yeah. And so I, I wonder, is, is there anything we could say? So obviously Marconi was wrong uh, in the specific example of wireless communication and in the broader idea of just telecommunications, more people connecting instantaneously across distances that that would solve social ills and end wars and stuff. Is there is there any grain of truth to that? I mean, is there any way of saying, well, maybe maybe in some way the internet or or other forms of of telecommunications around the world have in some way caused social change for the better? Oh, well, they've clearly caused social change, and I would argue for the better in many cases. But I would say that it wasn't. Uh, in the way that Marconi was necessarily anticipating. So, for example, the Arab Spring, right. being able to use the Internet in order to organize protests and to inform people as to what was going on mm-hmm. beyond the boundaries of a country, that became incredibly powerful. Or, and, and even within the boundaries of a country wherein these people were, were not allowed to to organize in yeah, other ways. Right. And then if you want to look at right now, the, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, I would argue without the various tools that we have connected to the Internet, including things like live streaming video, mm-hmm. uh, what, what has been a problem for a very long time in the United States is just now getting the attention that yeah. it deserves because – the tools to distribute that information are now in the hands of the people that have been uh, suffering from this problem for decades, really. Uh, It's not like this is a new problem. It seems new to people who were not part of that community because it wasn't something directly affecting them. Yeah, Yeah. uh, similar in the way to uh, to how when when television became a thing that people had in their homes in the 1960s, suddenly, or uh, 1960s, early 1970s, um, the... uh, the Vietnam War 
suddenly was thrown into very harsh relief because when you started getting images from that thing, it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, let's go. Oh, this is terrible. Right. Like, mm-hmm. Being able to actually see the the results as opposed to you get uh, an article in the paper that gives you very relevant information, but it distances you from the actual results. Yeah, I think I think it's you can't argue that it hasn't caused some social good or at least uh, uh, it has facilitated some social good. It hasn't been smooth. Uh, it's never going to be because we're human beings ultimately and human beings were, were messy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but it has opened up opportunities that previously weren't there. Do you think though that uh, expanding the power of telecommunications always just sort of like it, it causes a change in human behavior to, for the people who have access to this technology and then sort of settles into an equilibrium that was similar to how things were beforehand except now you just have some new tools or does it lead to lasting changes? I think – Again, I don't know that it leads anywhere. I think what it does is facilitates. Uh, just like I said earlier, I think that it, the, the actual leading to change is dependent upon whatever force is trying to enact that change. And they're using the telecommunications tools as one of the, uh, methods to enact that change. Well, I guess to be more specific, the, the change I'm thinking about is, is general uh, general increases in harmony, right? What what Marconi yeah. had in mind? I, I think I don't think that it is magically making people more harmonious. I think that that was a naive kind of prediction. Yeah, uh, I think it'll it lets more people hear stories, and that can ultimately lead to change. But it's not it's not as simple. Just as it wasn't when you say, "Hey, you kids, sit down and have a talk, and everything will be fine." It's rarely that simple. I, I think that you can change minds with, with telecommunication missives. I mean, I, I I would hope that you can because otherwise we've been spending a whole lot of time sitting in the studio over the past few years for for nothing. Um, yeah. If we're just talking to people who would already agree with us. Uh, and, and I have seen in, in comment threads on, on YouTube and in Facebook, uh, people say, oh, I didn't know that before. Thank you. Thank you for telling me about it. Like, sure. you know, like, like I, I would have been ignorant and I would have kept on going doing what turns out to be this harmful behavior if I had not known about this thing. Um, and also, uh, on a, on, on, on again, a personal person to person kind of basis, um, the, the internet has allowed, uh, people who would not have a support group in their local area to have a support group uh, for, um, you know, if, if, they, if they're gay and they're in a in a very anti-homosexual, homophobic kind of kind of town, then then they have that support. And uh, maybe they get to continue living their lives and live happier right. and get mm-hmm. out of there. Yeah. It, it, on a on a much um, less uh, impactful scale. I mean, the thing that I think of is what it was like. See, I. It, I grew up in the 80s and uh, the stuff I was interested in, none of my friends were really particularly interested in the same sort of things I was interested in. And so I didn't really have people to chat about uh, – chat with about the things that I was really passionate about. Uh, and then I would end up going to uh, conventions with my dad, you know, a science fiction author mm-hmm. dad, and run into you people. Discover Usenet groups eventually, but I'm talking about the early '80s here, oh, so you gotta you gotta walk before you can run. Um, Are so, Usenet groups running? 
Is that what they are? It was compared to what was happening before. Certainly. Certainly. <laughs> so, but, but the point being that, that the conventions <laughs> gave me a chance to chat with people who were like-minded, who enjoyed the same things I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And then eventually the internet allowed that on a much grander scale where I could see like, oh, there are all these people who share the same interests I have. Mm-hmm. But I never had an opportunity to chat with them because they don't happen to be near me. And same thing with them. They, they have the same experience. Uh, and obviously, again, that's that's tiny on the scale of something like someone dealing with, uh, uh, you know, intense homophobia or racism or whatever it may be, like some sort of prejudice against them for whatever reason. Uh, it's very different, but um, it makes it it makes a difference in a person's self image. They 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 stop asking themselves like, am I? Am I weird? Am I alone? Am yeah. I terrible? Am, am I, I wrong? Am I wrong? Yeah. yeah. And that, I think, is huge. I mean, it's huge on an individual-to-individual basis, but collectively, you, you'd have to say, like, that's fantastic to, to take away that burden that some people feel because they don't fit whatever their community has identified as the norm. On the flip side, I it, it can – I mean – there are still people who are jerks and they can also congregate on the yes. internet and and yes. kind of enter into a positive feedback loop where where they they are told that um that that, that racism or, sure. or whatever it is is okay and is accepted by their peer group. Yeah, that is not so good. That's very not good. But yes, yeah, I mean, true. I, I, I'm thinking about um so in the broader sense of creating global harmony. I do think there is some of what I don't know the the uh the you know the people who spoke the rhetoric of the electrical sublime what these people had in mind connecting brother with brother across the world uh people people forming bonds they would not have formed in physical space sure. I th- I think that's certainly true but I also think that there is global antagonism that uh, would not have existed otherwise and so I wonder if it, Essentially, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there any way to figure out if there has been a net change or have we just sort of like settled into a new wider equilibrium that's about the same as it was before? Well, I I think the thing is, is that, I mean, technology certainly changes us, but it doesn't it doesn't change very basic parts or, or no technology that we've had yet has been big enough to change extremely broad parts of the human experience right. or of human nature. Like the mm-hmm. fundamental elements yeah. of being human. Yeah. And and unfortunately, like being a jerk is kind of one of those. Like well, it's, and, it's on the list. I would also argue that your question is impossible to answer. And the yeah. reason why it's impossible to answer is because we don't have a separate pathway that we could judge against. Right. Of course. Right? If we had – if we if we could p- – Peer into a parallel universe where telecommunications were never developed, but but human race continued on to their 2016, and we would compare their 2016 to our 2016. Maybe then we could draw at least some conclusions, knowing that there are still thousands, millions of other variables at play. But without that, it's impossible, right? Because we live in the world that we forged, and so we can't really say what it would be like if we had gone a different route. Uh, that being said, it is a fascinating thing to think about. I mean, uh, I, I also, like you guys, believe in the power of telecommunications. If I didn't, I would not work here. I would be doing something else. But uh, I very much believe in the power to do good with it. I know, and without denying the fact that you can also do evil things with it. Absolutely, you can. But uh, it's such a powerful tool. That if enough people choose to do good with it, I think you can't help but enact a positive change on the world. And that's what I strive for. And uh, 
I guess to sum it up, as Shakespeare would say, uh, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. I like your I like your southern southern. Hey, to be fair, in Shakespeare's time, the accent was closer to Appalachian English than any other accent. Very true. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, we've been talking a lot already. We still have a ton more that we want to cover in this uh, in this this whole topic, uh, but we're super chatty, so we're going to end Us? up. No, yeah. So we're, we've got another one from Joe, and then we have Lauren's uh, favorite kind of futuristic predictions too to talk about, and we're going to save that for our next episode, guys. If you have any suggestions you would like to give us for future episodes. You can write us. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. We are fwthinking on Twitter. You can search fwthinking on Facebook. We'll pop right up. You can leave us a message. And we will talk to you again about our favorite predictions of the future like in a couple of days. I predict it. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.